0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the fallout of the lockdown fines on the government, the upcoming May elections, and how markets are reacting to the French elections and tech sector slide. With Miles Sherry, investment consultant, Olivia Gleeson, UK government relations expert, And Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello and welcome back to Word on the Street. We've got another great episode for you. I always enjoy holding Will, our CIO's feet to the fire. And so we'll be grilling him today on the latest developments and some of the big current news stories across markets from the massive move we saw in Netflix shares to the French Elections, but it's also been another fascinating week in Westminster to say the least, too. So I'm particularly pleased, as ever, no offence will, to welcome back Olivia, our resident expert on all things UK politics. So, Olivia, welcome back. Thanks again for joining us at quite short notice. I can't not start with you. We've obviously had more focus on that elongated hangover from Partygate. It seems like yesterday we were actually talking about that a month or two ago. It just doesn't seem to be going away for the Prime Minister, does it, following the widely reported fines? But the context perhaps this time feels very different to a month ago, particularly on the international stage. So how do you view Boris's position at this point in time and you know how safe actually is he as as Prime Minister?
1: Yeah, no, very happy to be here to speak about that. Lots, lots going on. You know, it's obviously been a really turbulent time for the government, not least for the Prime Minister. You know, as everyone and all the listeners will know, he received a historic fine from the Met Police for a party that broke the lockdown rules. And I think, you know, even if the cake was supposed to be in a Tupperware and there was no blowing of candles, so to speak, you know, he has become the first sitting Prime Minister to have been found to have broken the law. And that is significant. We saw some renewed calls for him to step down from his own MPs pretty uh, brutal condemnation from the opposition and a majority of the public in polling after Partygate sort of supported the suggestion of his resignation. And yet, you know, he's still standing. It's Teflon Boris. So I think we do need to do a bit of gazing and sort of wonder why. And of course, we haven't reached that all important 54 letter threshold to the 1922 committee, which I've spoken about at length before. So I think, you know, there's a few factors at play here. I mean, firstly, the obvious one, You've mentioned before, is Ukraine. I think I've said before, you know, Boris Johnson's had a very good war, and that's only strengthened in recent weeks. And I think a lot of Tory MPs will be thinking, this isn't the right time to remove their leader, but also perhaps maybe the war might have actually done enough to revive the embattled Prime Minister's fortune. So that's one to think about. And then a second factor, and again, a point on timing, you know, many Tory MPs buy Boris Johnson's argument that there are bigger fish to fry in the coming months than their leadership. Contest. You know, Johnson implored MPs, I think, at a private meeting last week to let him get on with the job. And we've seen in the last few days, you know, he's on a trip to India to discuss trade ties. There's announcements on education, migration. And I think he's keeping up a, a real drumbeat of activity to show that he needs to get on with the job. Now, the Queen's speech is coming up at, on the 10th of May. And I think, you know, that's an opportunity for the Prime Minister to sort of reset but again it will reinforce that narrative that he's running with that he needs to carry on fulfilling the mandate he was elected on and the rest is a bit of a distraction but i think i should say that you know whilst he has been able to cling on even after the fines and even actually pull off a a slight improvement in the polls owing to ukraine it, it has been marginal and i think partygate is weighing him down generally i think the conservatives currently stand on around 34% versus Labour up on 42%. And the dangers aren't even aren't even over for Boris Johnson. We've obviously got the full Sue Gray report coming up and those all important May elections still to come. So he's definitely not out of the woods yet.
0: Yeah, and you touched on the May elections there. As you say, there's, there's lots of other stuff going on too. But that's probably the main thing to watch, right, for any effects from all of this. So have your views or our views, I should say, changed there at all? And, and what should we really be watching for?
1: Yeah, I definitely think they're going to be a really interesting set of local elections. I think May 5th is uh, the date to look out for. And I think if we look at the polling, it's particularly interesting. I said, you know, Labour's up on 42% for voting intention. And what's interesting there is, you know, that's 13% up on where they were this time last year ahead of the local elections. Remember, the Conservatives at that time are sort of benefiting from that vaccine bounce. So I think we are expecting... Labour to do pretty well. Actually, in fact, I think I was reading this morning that the Labour Party are potentially uh, in reach of the so-called holy trinity of favourable polling factors. That's a trio of poll leads. One, in voting intention. Second, voters' preference for Prime Minister. And third, uh, which party is better placed to manage the economy? And I've spoken before about the importance of that latter indicator, in particular when it comes to elections. And it's noteworthy, I think, that for the first time in many, many years, Labour is now tied with the Tories on on which party is positioned best to manage that economy. So I think it will be a really interesting set of elections to watch out for. I think all the indicators bode well for a sort of strong Labour performance and a potentially very tricky Conservative performance. Now, you know, a lot can change between now and May 5th still. And we also should be, you know, a little bit careful to read into uh, local elections because obviously constituency boundaries are different to council boundaries. So the read across generally into sort of how the Conservatives might be doing as we head into the next general election isn't so clear cut. But I think if I was going to make a prediction, and I definitely shouldn't do it.
2: uh, (laughs) Go on, do it, do it. (laughs)
1: Just say, you know, I won't get into specifics because you won't invite me back on the next podcast. I think, you know, I'd say the Conservatives are very likely to have a pretty big hill to climb, I think, after May 5th.
0: Got it. And look, before I turn to Will, we should probably also touch too on recent related developments with potential leadership contenders. So do you have any kind of updated insights into that?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, jumping back a bit to sort of my earlier remarks, the first question, I think, on why Johnson's been able to survive party gate, you know, I think, let's be honest and say that one of the biggest challenges sort of facing his detractors at the moment is are there any viable alternatives right now to the prime minister? Now, the chancellor, Rishi Sunak, has had a pretty torrid few weeks, and he's understandably lying quite low at the moment. And I think, you know, many of Johnson's critics were natural supporters of Sunak, But, you know, that leadership chatter has died down significantly. And I think those camps will be looking to regroup, certainly. And I think without that clarity on succession, or, you know, I should say at least much more uncertainty than there's previously been, MPs from all wings of the party are choosing to keep their powder dry, preferring, you know, the devil they know to the uncertain outcome that a Tory leadership contest right now could result in. So I think we're in a very different position to where we were sort of on leadership contenders, maybe about two months ago. That being said, I think, you know, going back to the the May elections, perhaps depending on the results there, that could be another impetus to sort of shake up that Tory party position on sort of lying low and waiting. And they may decide that that is the catalyst to do something different.
0: Yeah, a case of wait and see in terms of seeing how all of this plays out. But great stuff. Thanks, Olivia. Fantastic insights as always. Will. Turning to you, I know the team currently have that underweight position, albeit very small, just a couple of percent or so in sterling across most of our portfolios. I can imagine some may wonder if any of that rationale is tied to the evolving political context. So is that influencing the do there at all?
2: No and it, it's first of all, it's obviously always very nice to have Olivia covering this situation with her characteristic delicacy rather than uh, my size tens which would have you know I'd obviously not have a job by the end of the podcast but as usual. <laughs> Thanks, Miles. Thanks for your support, as always. Um, but look, no, you're right. I mean, so actually the position has nothing to do with the goings on in Westminster. and knows more to the idea that the team feel uh, that the level of the currency of sterling relative to its kind of G10 peers likely misrepresents the scale you know, the jeopardy of the economic rapids that uh, the UK is unfortunately kind of heading into. The snapshot of the UK actually right now, provided by a kind of, you know, range of high frequency data from restaurant bookings to you know, Google mobility data to flight departures from Gatwick and Heathrow, it's actually okay, actually. But there's a kind of a degree of normality returning or appearing to return. However, It is here where some of the worries around in this country, where some of the worries around inflation persisting, seeping, you know, painfully into our collective consciousness that are most, you know, that that's where the fears are most vivid, most plausible. The central bank has already been getting busy and it's set to do quite a bit more. Some of this is also true to an extent of the US. Of course, the problems are a little bit different there, admittedly, given the nature and. In a relative scale of the pandemic stimulus. However, there is added complexity in the UK, which no one will need reminding of, in the fact that this is an economy trying to bed down a major change in its trading arrangements. So stickier inflation, the kind of central bank activity we haven't seen in, in a long, long time, and the sense that the point at which interest rates start to bite is always invisible or unobservable, let's say, but Mm. it's been changed substantially by the last couple of years. Uh, That's all just part of that more worrying context for the UK that we hope we're wrong, uh, you know, in a way, but we're employed to try and maximise the long term savings potential of our clients. So the team is necessarily dispassionate, even when it comes to, you know, the place, the economy we all live in and need to do well.
0: Absolutely. But I guess something that well would be influential presumably as if we saw a victory for marine le pen in the second round of the french elections this weekend coming so have the team taken any investment action in order to you know protect our our funds and multi asset class portfolios in in that respect
2: yeah, Miles, I mean, you're not going to catch me out there. We're all too long <laughs> in the tooth. I try. We're all too long in the tooth of bandy around confident election forecast, particularly with Olivia policing proceedings, obviously. Betting markets are suggesting a Marine Le Pen victory is unlikely and getting a bit less likely since the first round, actually. However, this week's head-to-head debate was a... Very different, surely less definitive affair versus the last time round in what 2017 was it? Mm. And, and a Le Pen presidency is, is of course, you know, far from impossible. If it did happen, uh, we know that the front that you know they've got very different manifestos, Le Pen versus uh, Macron. The front that France uh, projects to the world outside Europe included uh, would be very, very different. And this, remember, is where a lot of these kind of unilateral power at the president resides. Le Pen has long since dropped her policy to return. And to the frank but the sort of the nature of her policy agenda would make it very difficult for france to operate within the you know the single market and so on it, it would make the european conversation uh, much more jarring than of late that seems to be the anticipation uh, in terms of markets the current probabilities of a Le pen victory should already be baked into prices to a degree so in the event of a victory you have to move from a 10 to 20 percent probability to 100 percent obviously and vice versa so looking at the you know expectations from our colleagues in the investment bank you know they're following this very closely and have people that focused very specifically on individual crosses and so on the euro dollar should weaken credit and equities would soften a little bit Um, but it's not something at the moment that you know to your original question a long word answer wasn't it sorry but it's not something we're taking avoiding action in portfolios and funds so far as with all kind of idiosyncratic political risks, the focus should be on the benefits of global diversification. That's really how we try and ride out these kind of unknown, uh, difficult to sort of trade situations.
0: I know we always bang on about diversification, you know, as you say, but it really does seem to me at least to be the most appropriate answer here, as with many of the, the other threats out there in truth. And look, you and the team, you're always at pains to point out that stuff can go right. It's important to remember that as well as wrong and over longer periods of time, certainly at least from the perspective of the world economy and a diversified mix of investments, history does generally suggest that more tends to go right than wrong. Sorry, that was all a bit of a mouthful, wasn't it? But anyway, <laughs> keeping with the, the stuff that can go wrong when you're not diversified, you know, we've just got to talk about Netflix and the jaw-dropping moves we saw in the share price this week. Now, we obviously are not giving a recommendation to buy or sell netflix shares here far from it but will can you maybe enlighten us a little bit on why the shares fell basically they halved in value and perhaps more importantly for diversified investors whether there are actually any sinister maybe warning signs in there for investing more generally
2: Yeah, the the slump, if you look from October, I mean, it's alarming, isn't it? I mean, it it, Mm. eye-watering. I guess, first and foremost, this again is a parable, like you said you were just highlighting, it's a parable of diversification. You cannot let one company, or I don't have the hair to lose, to let one company dictate the path of your savings. That's, more like gambling rather than investing.
0: And, and particularly, right, you know, you've always said that the winners of yesterday are not necessarily the winners of the future. It's perhaps another good example of that as well.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's just right. I think winners don't keep, don't have to keep on winning. <laughs> I think the other thing here is, you know, the troubles here boil down to ultimately to the assumed size of, of Netflix's addressable market in what is becoming an increasingly competitive zone with Disney and others joining the fray. Now, those assumptions on the size of Netflix addressable future opportunity. They've taken a major blow.
0: And look, that's a very specific example. But nonetheless, we are into the latest quarterly earnings season. Now, admittedly, it's still very early days. But so far, well, it's not actually looking too bad, really, is it? So does that tell us that maybe the economy is still ticking along, you know, relatively well or at least OK?
2: Uh, yes. Well, th- I didn't mean yes like that. I meant yes. Earning <laughs> season tends to throw up more dust than direction when it comes to working out the path ahead for the for the overall economy, as you know well, Miles. Season pro you, but it, it's worth noting though. I think on your sort of but the inference of your question that other data still suggests that the US economy has considerable momentum a slowdown is surely coming we're in motion already we are going to see central bankers in the US act really vigorously over the rest of the year if they live up to their promises and, and trying to they're trying to engineer just what you just what I suggest which is a slowdown uh, in order to try and bring inflation uh, to heal, so slow down demand a bit. However, the US private sector still has loads going for it. China is another matter for what it's worth. The worst COVID outbreak since the start of the crisis is mixing really unpleasantly with some of the pre-existing challenges relating to the property market and so on. But China is, from a capital markets and global economy perspective, it's much less important to both, like I say, the direction of the world's economy and her, her, her capital markets.
0: And look, I know you well hate to be to be frank, this kind of end of an era stuff usually you've always told me that all those media stories suggesting that we are sort of living through a kink in our in our times, if you like, owed more to an innate desire for us to feel special more than anything meaningful, but surely you maybe are starting to to change your mind a bit because the last two decades really are going to stand out, I think, from you know the great financial crisis through to the various populist spasms, if you like, Brexit, President Trump, the pandemic, war in Europe now, and the kind of inflation and central bank action we have not seen in decades that, that you've just alluded to.
2: Yes, I'm going to admit that I'm, I'm going to row back on my previous comments to you on that, Miles. I mean, it, it's the kind of <laughs> the curse of living in interesting times, isn't it? I mean, I, yeah, I have to admit, I'm really starting to believe personally that this time is a little bit different, that there are different views on the team on this. So unlike a lot of stuff where I'm kind of trying to represent the team's view, this is probably more a personal one. However, you know, a couple of the books I uh, hid away from my family with at Easter got me thinking further on this angle, really. I mean, it was interesting you asked because one of them was written by the chair of evolutionary biology at Harvard, a guy called Joseph um, Henrich. You may be starting to wonder how much I must hate my family or they me. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, if I'm hiding away yeah. reading that kind of stuff. But anyway, he and a few colleagues ran a series of psychological tests on participants from all around the world. And his findings are, are I think, really remarkable. Essentially, and this is a few years back, he started this well, quite a few years ago. That he started back this project, him and his team started this project. And essentially much of the West, the so-called developed liberal democratic world, displays like startlingly distinct psychological characteristics particularly relative to the rest of the world particularly with regards to things like trust fairness and um, and and individualism now this book called the weirdest people in the world is an attempt to explain what caused this psychological behavioral kind of parting of ways between uh, these now rich liberal democratic countries and, and the rest now he i think quite plausibly pinpoints early christian promotion of monogamy and restriction of cousin marriage i know it gets weirder has uh, a key <laughs> turning point like really beginning like back before the fall of the western roman empire now remember at this stage in order to spread the catholic church had to break through into societies where allegiance was first and foremost to your clan to your kin where intermarriage was used as to you know to reinforce those ties uh, it was self interest from the church's point to promote monogamous marriage and change the family structure now the ultimate result was both sensational and quite unexpected in many ways. So as relations with families weakened, the sense of individual selfhood grew stronger. As humans relied less on relatives, they became more trusting of strangers. As individuals replaced kinship ties with, you know, membership in wider social networks, they evolved new, new, wider networks like cities, universities, and ultimately, you know, representative democracies. Now, again, this is part of the age old question of why it was Europe that took off, not China uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, the point here though, for us, I think is that, like you say, the last few decades start to feel like something that might durably shape our collective psyches, change yeah. the way our brains work. Perhaps we are now on a slightly divergent path to the one we were pre 2006, 2007. Now, if we had, if we lived a thousand years, which thank the Lord we won't, maybe future historians would be able to tell us. However, I also take one other meaning for this, just briefly, uh, and that is that the foundations of the net progress we have made so far as a species since medieval times are likely a lot surer, a lot firmer than widely imagined. I know this is a familiar point, but the information revolution we are currently living through is disruptive, often depressing. If you follow Twitter feeds and more besides, but potentially it's an important staging point in the progress that is still ahead. And that obviously this progress is what drives the reason why this is relevant to this podcast is that that progress, that productivity, the, the payout from that knowledge, you know, that knowledge mountain of explanatory knowledge that continues to build. That is what drives long-term portfolio returns, not the French elections, whoever's going to be in or out in UK politics or even US politics or, you know, anywhere else in the world, to be honest. It is how how much payout we get from that ever-growing mountain of explanatory knowledge. And as we've said before, you've heard me talk about it many times, you've had others talk about it many times, you know, now that knowledge mountain is starting to grow faster than we can even explain with theory, thanks to advances in artificial intelligence. It won't pay out evenly in terms of inventions, but that it won't pay out at all, that pessimistic view, that's just wrong, in my opinion. So, you know, I think we're at the start of our journey as a species, not the beginning not not, not the end uh, and that's why you want to be invested in a diversified mix of assets just to bring it weirdly from monogamy to investment returns over the next 20 years
0: yeah only you could come up with that kind <laughs> of concoction you, you do oh, like your stories weird. don't you but i think it's a very very fair point in a very interesting way of thinking about it. And as always, nice to end with a bit of optimism to kind of end the day. But look, thanks a lot for that, Will. And thanks again, Olivia, for your time. No doubt we'll have you back on in the coming weeks ahead. Have a great weekend when the time comes and we'll catch you soon. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.